This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. For those of you guys who haven't seen me speak before or don't know me, my name is Andy Tenner. I am a, a physician. I'm emergency medicine and internal medicine trained. Um, and I did a fellowship in global health. And my initial, my first love was disaster and humanitarian response. And that was really where I thought my career was going and what I wanted to be doing. Um, but through some of the things we're going to talk about today, I realized what the importance of building health systems is and really realized the importance of emergency care systems. And so I'm going to talk a little bit more about that today, and hopefully you guys will get some of my my perspective on this. Um, and hopefully I will make you converts and you will go out um, uh, with you know, increased ammunition to advocate for emergency care systems worldwide. Um, I'm faculty here at UCSF in the Department of Emergency Medicine. And um, I actually had a very interesting start to my career here. Um, I was faculty at another institution before I came here. And then right as I came here, uh, was the start of the Ebola outbreak. Um, and my training is in humanitarian crisis, but also in tropical infectious disease, um, because I have an abnormal love of parasites uh, and find them fascinating. Um, but when, so when this outbreak happened, there were, at the time, there were a handful of people in the world who'd ever seen Ebola. And so there were some people that had a lot of expertise in infectious disease and infection prevention control, but Ebola was kind of a different beast, and we weren't you know, we didn't have a lot of experience with that. And then we had people that had a lot of experience with humanitarian crisis. Um, but this, again, was a different beast because now it was not just people being displaced from their houses. It was people who were being displaced from their houses because they had a communicable disease or were at risk of a communicable disease. And that required all of the spacesuits and all the stuff that you guys saw on TV. So that was, and I just happened to have training in both of those two things. So um, as I was coming here, I really felt like I needed to be there and needed to be helping. And a lot of my friends and colleagues were there working and helping. Um, but I had just taken this new job, um, and I was really excited to be here. But I wasn't sure, I thought it was probably poor form to walk up to my new boss and say, thanks so much for the job, really excited to be here. I'm going to go. <laughs> so... Um, but right at that time, the chancellor for University of California um, and, and uh, our dean for UCSF said, we want to support any of our faculty that want to go, that want to help in this crisis, which was incredible because at the time, a lot of my colleagues that worked for academic institutions were having to either resign from their jobs or take a leave of absence because people were so worried about the media implications of having somebody working in the Ebola crisis. So UCSF fully supported me. They set up a vacation donation bank so people could donate their vacation. That was what funded me and allowed me to not have to go without salary. It was really incredible. Um, but I learned a lot of lessons there, and I'm going to talk a little bit about some of those today. So I know you guys have talked a little bit about emergency care. Um, and you've seen different aspects of emergency care and how that relates to global health. But I want to talk about, we're going to talk about this global view, but I'm going to start out down where we are. So what happens in here in San Francisco if you have an emergency? So let's say I walk out of this lecture tonight and I get hit by a car. 
what happens? What do you guys think? Go to the emergency room. Absolutely, absolutely. How would I get there if I got hit by a car? Call 911. Absolutely. So you call 911. What happens when you call 911? Exactly. There's a dispatcher that answers the phone. That dispatcher is trained to give you some first aid information and to know who to dispatch. So that dispatcher knows that I need an ambulance and maybe not police or maybe police. Who knows? But they know that I at least need an ambulance. So then they dispatch that ambulance. That ambulance has trained providers on it who have been certified by the state of California and sometimes by a national organization who have, are trained to a certain level of care and they know how to provide care in the back of an ambulance. There are also other governing structures that say you have to have a certain amount of gauze in your ambulance, you have to have certain medications, different equipment, depending on the level of your ambulance. So that ambulance comes picks me up, they give me some care on the scene as needed, and then where do they take me? The ER, ER, yeah, so they take me to the emergency department. When I get to the emergency department, I'm not sure how, hopefully you guys don't have much experience with this, but you may. Um, So when you get to the emergency department, the first thing that happens there, does anybody know? Triage, absolutely. So a nurse, uh, usually it's a nurse, will come and meet you and will do what's called triage. They're going to assess me quickly and figure out how severe my injuries are likely to be, and they're going to put me in the queue. Now, if I just got hit by a car and I'm pretty badly hurt, I go to the top of the queue. I always tell my friends and family it's never good to be the first person back in the emergency department. (laughs) It's always good to wait a little bit because that means that you're not the sickest person in the ED. Um, But if I am the sickest person, then I get triaged, and then I go back to whichever part of the emergency department I'm supposed to go to. When I get there, I'm met by nurses, doctors, other staff, um, all of whom, again, are trained to a certain level that's mandated by the state of California and the U.S. government, depending on um, which provider. And then I'm given medications and treatments that are mandated by governing bodies in the U.S., Okay, so, I'm, so there's, you know, as an emergency department, you're supposed to have a certain level of supplies, et cetera. So even though it seems fairly simple, go to the emergency department, um, there's so much that's involved in that. Okay? So what happens here? This is a picture I took in Congo when our car broke down by the side of the road. <laughs> but this was in Democratic Republic of Congo. So what happens if that guy on the bike carrying the water out there, what if he gets hit by a car? Yeah. That's, it's a much, much more difficult system. There's no 911 to call. There's no universal number in country. If there was, the dispatcher would have to speak over 120 different tribal languages for this region. If you had such a dispatcher, there's no ambulance to dispatch. And if there were ambulances to dispatch, there's no regulation over training. There aren't even um, training protocols at this point for EMS providers. And if there were, and they took you to the nearest health facility, there's no regulation or standardization over what kind of training those providers have. Most of them don't have emergency care-specific training. Um, And... There's no regulation over what equipment has to be in the hospitals. So there's a lot of gaps in this system. And obviously, you know, the roads aren't that good. So there's also the public health issues. So 
Um, you aren't necessarily in the car you're in. The seatbelts may not work. There may not be mandated. There's all sorts of other issues that put you at higher risk for dying. So in low- and middle-income countries, the mortality rate for um, emergencies is astronomically high. It is astronomically high. And so we have all these people around the world that are dying unnecessarily every day just because the system is not organized enough to take care of them. And I'm not talking about adding in extra supplies, adding in extra personnel, or any of those issues. This is just people knowing what steps to take in what order. When one of the keys to emergencies is that it's time-sensitive, which means you have to know how to respond in a quick manner. That's one of the difficulties around emergency care, and I think something that people don't often think about. If you ask any doctor how to take care of a life or death emergency, especially one in their field, you ask any nurse, you ask any medic, okay? Um, well, medics I should leave out because they're trained in emergency care, but any doctor or nurse that's not trained in emergency care, they can give you the answer for what they should do, okay? But it's a, it's a different thing when you have a patient who comes up to you and they don't have a sign on them saying, I'm having a heart attack. Okay, you have to take a patient that's what we call undifferentiated, which means you have a patient, you know nothing about them except that they are going to die or they look like they're going to die in the next minutes to hours. And you need to figure out what's wrong with them and do something about it quickly. Right? Now, by figuring out what's wrong with them, I don't mean figuring out that it's their, you know, which blood vessel it is in their heart that's occluded. It's more figuring out that they're having a problem with their heart, that they're having a problem with their circulation, their breathing, their airway, whatever um, the general theme is of the injury, and trying to address that. So how do we do this? How do we go from this situation to this situation? Okay? And how do we go from this situation to even better? Right? So that's what we're working on, and that's what the goal is. So the way that, you have to, that I think about emergency care systems is like this. So you have emergency medicine. That's the specialty that I practice in. Okay? And emergency medicine are people like me who do well under pressure. We like thinking quickly on our feet. We have a little bit of ADHD, um, and we like managing chaos. Okay, so we, we chose this field because we are kind of drawn to it. Outside of that, you have what's called emergency services. So these are, for example, um, trauma surgery, okay, or OBGYN doctors that are managing a life-threatening condition in OBGYN, or I would say like your orthopedic doctors that are managing an orthopedic emergency. Okay, so they don't necessarily do emergencies all the time, but they are trained to provide services in emergencies. And then beyond that, you have these systems. Okay, the systems are things like um, a pre-hospital system. Getting how does the patient get to the world where the bad thing happened to them to from there to the hospital? Um, how are ambulances governed, how are um, our credentials for those of us that want to provide emergency care, how are those established? So that's the bigger, broader picture of, of all of the emergency care system. Okay? So if we're looking at the emergency care system, in my perspective, our health care is precariously balanced on the emergency care system. 
Okay. Now, I know what you're thinking. I'm an emergency medicine doctor, so of course I think that the world revolves around me. Um, and that if you ask my mom, that's probably true. Um, but it's not actually with this. So uh, emergency care systems, if you think about it, what is the thing that we all want? Whether it's you know, a five-year-old child coming in or me coming in if I need emergency care, what is the, the ultimate goal of going to the healthcare system? Yes, to get better. I don't want to die. <laughs> I would like them to stop me from dying or having something bad happen to me that's irreversible or having something painful. Okay, All of us, that's what we want. And if you feel like the system can't do that for you, if it can't treat you in your time of need, it collapses. Okay. So now, are there other components? Absolutely. Are these components essential? Yes. Um, is primary care essential? Absolutely. It is so much better that the bad thing didn't happen to you than to have to seek emergency care for it. But if you don't have the ability to provide emergency care for people, this is what happens, right? Okay. So I'm sort of still going down, okay? So we're, we're on our granular level. We will get to the global view, I promise. But we're on our granular San Francisco level, and now I'm taking us microscopic, Okay, so this is a story about a hungry boy, a bat, and a fragile healthcare system. So in 2014, a little boy in Guinea, um, we think, killed a bat and ate it with his friends. Okay, this is common in um, poor, in areas of the world where meat is expensive. It's called bush meat. Um, in the parts of Africa that I work in. Um, and people, if meat's expensive and you can find meat there, then you take advantage of it. So this little boy killed this bat. He died shortly thereafter. Um, then his mom, his grandmother, and his sister died. Okay. There's a few gaps in between, but then several other people in his community died. Then it spread beyond his community, and then it spread into the neighboring countries. Okay? When all was said and done, in Guinea, the total population of about 12 million, Sierra Leone with a total population of about 6 million, and Liberia with a total population of about 4 million, about 11,000 people had died. Right? Now, any death is tragic. Any, un any unnecessary death. And Ebola is a terrible way to die. Um, it is sort of the quintessential bleeding from your eyeballs disease. Um, it's a terrible way to go. But if you look at it, that number of about, what, 26 million? Is that right? About 26 million people and 11,000 people died. That number in and of itself is not that big. Okay, flu kills, we said, just fifteen to 30,000 people every year. But the thing that was terrifying about this, and the reason that the public health community had this call to arms early on, was that fear was running rampant because of the type of disease. This is the caregiver's disease. So the people, you, you get Ebola through close contact with somebody who's sick. So it was killing caregivers. It was killing healthcare workers. It killed, although it killed only 11,000 
people total from these countries. In each of these countries, it killed between five to ten percent of their healthcare population, of their healthcare worker population. So it caused devastation to the healthcare systems. The other thing that was we were worried about and we think likely happened, although we don't have the numbers for it yet, was you look at about 11,300 deaths from Ebola. The estimated number of excess deaths from malaria are about 11,000. Now, that's not the number of people who die of malaria. That's the number of people who died who normally wouldn't have because they couldn't get to testing, they couldn't get to treatment, or they couldn't get to a healthcare worker because the healthcare system was either had collapsed or because of the number of deaths of healthcare workers. So almost as many people died of malaria as died of Ebola. And malaria is the number seven killer in the country. That means there are six more things that kill more people than malaria. This is the big issue here because Ebola killed a lot of people and it was terrifying. But because it was terrifying, the healthcare system collapsed and a lot more people died than would normally have because that healthcare system wasn't there to support them. The other issue is the cost. So if you look, the red bar is the cost of the, uh, the, amount, the, cost of the Ebola response. So we spent about $3.6 billion on the Ebola response. If you look at the green, yellow, and blue line, that's $1.6 billion. That is the cost of universal health care for every man, woman, and child in all three of those countries for a year. So it was almost uh, a little over twice as much for the Ebola crisis than we could have provided health care to every person in those countries. So it's much, much more expensive to try to fix the problem once it's happened. Okay? Now, if there was an emergency care system, a stronger emergency care system in these countries, would the Ebola crisis have totally been averted? Probably not. But what could have happened if that was there is that system could have expanded or become what I call a scalable system. It could have uh, adapted to that surge. So as a part of these emergency care systems, you're building in for preparations for disasters. And in a setting where you have as few, you have as limited resources as um, these three countries did, that system may just be people saying, hey, we have a problem here, we need outside help, and we need you to come here when these organizations come in saying, you go here, you go here, you go there. What happened is the, the system collapsed in all of those countries, and people like me who have training and wanted to come and help showed up, but I had never been in Sierra Leone before. The organization that I worked for had, um, and that was actually why I worked with them because I knew that they would have a better sense for the country than I would. But even with that, we're doing the best we can to try to mitigate the crisis, but it's so much better if the local people and the local governments can help direct us. So by putting in an emergency care system and planning for this, one, the cost is a lot lower. Two, we can activate the warning systems earlier and try to prevent the health system from collapsing. And so those are the really the key elements that I think could have happened, could have changed the outcome of the Ebola, um, the epidemic in, from 2014 to 2015. So how do we do this? Okay, so I'm talking all this, you know, pie in the sky, someday we'll be able to save the world. Um, but how do we actually go about and do this? 
So going back to my healthcare system and emergency care system, when the healthcare system is in trouble, you have to support it. And the way that we support that, the way that we support the emergency care system is through training and system tools. So training obviously is building capacity. It's teaching people how to respond to emergencies in an organized way. As I mentioned to you guys before, doctors, nurses, healthcare providers, um, they know about how to take care of emergencies. But when you have somebody who is bleeding out from because they just had a baby, you have somebody who just got hit by a car, you have somebody who's having a heart attack, somebody who has uh, a severe infection, and all those people are coming at you at once, what do you do? How do you figure out what's going on with them? And then you've got 30 other people who have broken bone and a cold and you know other, other um, illnesses. How do you sort that out? So the training is how do you approach that in a systematic way? So at that moment when, and we all as emergency care providers at some point have that deer in the headlights moment, when you have all this training and it's sitting in your brain and you see this patient in front of you and you're just like, I don't remember my name. I don't know where to start. I don't know what to do. And it's terrifying. Uh, and by giving them, by doing these trainings, we give them a system to fall back on. So how to, okay, this is where my approach is. Even though I don't remember my name, I remember I start here and moving through and assessing those patients. Now, these system tools are things like triage, okay? So triage is actually a very organized system of how do you figure out who is the sickest? Um, how do you document on a patient in a way that the next provider can follow up on them and not duplicate a medication or not you know, make an error um, for that patient? How do you make sure that under stressful conditions, when you've been working 12 hours and you haven't had a chance to go to the bathroom or have, eat anything, that and your brain is barely working, how do you prevent providers from making mistakes? So we need to build tools to try to help with this. So if we could do that, not perfectly, but just to the level, for example, of the US or Europe or the UK in low and middle income countries, how many lives do you think we could potentially save? What percentage of the people that die? I told you a lot of people die unnecessarily. What do you think? Huh? 50. All right, you got the slides ahead of time. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I actually took this slide out on purpose. <laughs> Very good. 50%. 50%. That's astronomical. Okay. When aspirin, when we first started using aspirin for heart attacks, it, it decreased mortality by about 10%, and it was like nobody had ever seen that before. We're talking potentially 50%, almost 50% of lives saved in low- and middle-income countries if we could get the same level of an emergency care system. And I'm not talking perfect. We, our system is flawed too. But just that level, we think we could save this many lives. Nothing else comes close to that. And in some of the studies that we've done implementing some of the tools I'm about to talk about, we've seen mortality reductions close to that. They're small studies, um, but we've seen 40% mortality reductions in those studies. Okay, So this is... There's no other thing that we can do that saves lives like this. And it's something that has been largely ignored, not because people don't want to save lives or because they don't know it, but it's something, uh, or because they don't want to help. But it's, it's sort of, uh, it's this overlooked area in medicine because of that, what I was just telling you, doctors and nurses and mid-level providers, our advanced practice providers, 
they know how to take care of emergencies. And everybody says, well, they, they know how to do it. They're trained, right? But it's that organization of the chaos. How do you actually do it when that patient is sitting in front of you and you have to find them in a sea of people who are otherwise not that sick? So how do you organize that? And that's what we've been working on. Okay, I promised you the global view. So what I, I talked to you a little bit about what, why emergency care systems are so important an example of what happens when you don't have an emergency care system. And now, what are we doing about it? Okay, so um, I worked with a group called the African Federation for Emergency Medicine. I still work with them, but I, I started out my career working with them, um, trying to develop some of these tools. And not really, at least for me, I was working with people who I think had a bigger vision than I did, but I was pretty new. And my approach to that was just I saw these incredible providers that I was working with. These, these, um, I was working a lot in Tanzania, but then in other countries as well. But these it was doctors and nurses and what they call house officers and these incredible providers who were working 12, 16-hour days, making less money than a lot of their friends and colleagues under tougher conditions because they wanted to help their friends, families, and their patients. And they didn't have time to develop a lot of these tools. They knew that they needed them, but they were busy taking care of patients, and they were taking care of hundreds of patients who were coming in all at once. And they knew that they needed these tools, but finding the time when you're already working 16 to 18 hours a day is just really difficult. So with the African Federation for Emergency Medicine, we started trying to build some of these tools for them. Um, and that was helpful for the areas that we were working in. Um, but it's hard to have a global reach, even with that. Um, so there are a couple of organizations that do have that reach. Um, and those organizations have started to f focus on emergency care. They've started to realize um, what is what the potential for emergency care is through the leadership of some really impressive people who are working within those organizations. So I want to talk a little bit about those organizations and some of the structure. So I think we all kind of know of the United Nations, um, but if you were like me, before I really started working with anything related to the UN, I sort of knew it as a thing that was out there, and I thought it was kind of this like group, this big club of countries who came together and made some decisions about things. Uh, but I didn't honestly know very much more than that. But the UN, um, they have several tenants. There are several things that, that they are tasked with doing. Um, so one is international peace and security. And I have to look at them because I always forget one of them. Um, one is protecting human rights, okay? Um, delivering humanitarian aid, so responding to crises, promoting sustainable development, and then maintaining international law. Okay. So that is what the, the UN was formed by these countries coming together and saying we need an overseeing body that is governed by the member states and that can help us to kind of globally uh, approach some of these problems that, we're, that we have. The World Health Organization is a what's called a UN specialized agency. So it developed as a separate thing, but it is an entity under UN, and they are tasked with um, addressing the healthcare issues around the world. Um, so um, they're an autonomous organization, but working within the UN. They also have the same 
principles and method of government as, as the UN. So we all, we've heard of the UN General Assembly. The UN General Assembly is when the, all the member states come together and give the UN direction. So the, the member states come together, there's several different levels of structure around that, and they tell the UN what they want it to do. Same thing happens with WHO. WHO has what's called the World Health Assembly. So the World Health Assembly is when 194 member states, the ministries of health um, in the U.S., that's our Department of Health and Human Services, the ministries of health for all of these countries that are members, and then there's several um, observing bodies and other groups that come, but they come together in this room and one other, and they vote on what they are going to adopt as resolutions. And those resolutions are what give the UN, uh, the WHO, its mandate. So this past year, um, one of the resolutions that was up was around emergency care. Um, and this was actually a picture that I took from inside the room, which was really cool to be there. Um, and I was there, I actually was a total um, fluke that I was in there. There was a group that needed a statement read and one of their people wasn't, they were sort of double booked and I happened to be there. So I got to be in the room where it happened. <laughs> I just went and saw Hamilton. Um, so, but it was really cool to be in there and watch this process. Um, and when this happened, we actually now have a World Health Assembly resolution, 7216, that is emergency care systems are an essential component of universal health care. So Every, all 194 member states, it was sponsored by, I believe, 30 countries, 194 member states voted unanimously that emergency care systems are an essential component of universal health care, including the U.S. This is incredibly powerful for us, um, and it's incredibly powerful statement. Um, for a long time, I think, in emergency care, we sort of felt uh, neglected because people weren't paying attention to emergency care. Now, again, like I said, that doesn't mean emergency care is the most important thing. It's a, it's a component of all of these things that helps, um, that helps us to provide better health care for our patients. One of the questions I get often is, what about primary care? And I've already told you my stance on primary care. It's absolutely essential, and it's so much better to not have the bad thing happen to you. The issue with primary care is that it takes a long time to get to scale up to have, be able to have primary care for every man, woman, and child. Now, that means we need to start now because it's taking a long time. So there's a lot of groups that are working to try to help build primary care. Um, and that, I think, is an incredible, um, we, it's incredibly needed. But at the same time, people are dying today. And so how do we combat that? So in my mind, we sort of work hand in hand. Um, as we're trying to build up primary care, the primary care system is trying to keep people from coming to us uh, or from needing emergency care. And then for the people that either can't be reached yet or we haven't gotten there yet um, that are at risk of dying now, we can help with that. So again, how do we do this? So we got this emergency care, this resolution through um, and the member states, so this was actually sponsored by um, Ethiopia and Eswatini. Um, they were the ones who took, Eswatini is Swaziland, just in case um, uh, you weren't familiar with that. It was actually, I, I had to 
learn that as well. I was a little behind the times. Um, but Eswatini and Ethiopia really had this visionary leadership, and, and they were able to get this resolution through in six months. It usually takes about 18 months. So they did an incredible job. So now we have this resolution. Okay, we have all 194 member states saying that emergency care is an important, it's an essential part of universal health care. Now what do we do? Okay, now we got a lot of work ahead of us. So what the World Health Organization has done is they took a very stepwise approach to how do we tackle this, this issue. So the first thing they did is they developed this emergency care systems framework. This is the nice um, picture version of it. So this is the infographic. There are some very in-depth spreadsheets behind this, but they're much less pretty on a PowerPoint. <laughs> so, um, but this is... Um, and one of the advocacy tools for explaining to people what the essential components of an emergency care system are. And this was not somebody at the WHO who just developed this. This was actually, I believe, over 40 countries gave input. And all of these components, there was a universal, unanimous agreement for all of them, um, which I also think is unheard of, that all of these countries said that these are the components, there's nothing missing, and there's nothing that they debated that shouldn't be on there. Now, again, this is essential. This doesn't mean that you can't go above this, but this is what you have to have to be an emergency care system. So then looking at this, so now that we've defined what is an emergency care system and what are the essential components, um, and if you look over here, so you've got your scene, your transport, and your facility. So what we're looking at is you have to have some way of, again, flagging that you need help Okay, in the world. You want to have bystander, um, so you have... Dispatcher giving instructions to the bystander. You have some way of accessing a provider who can come out and give some scene care. And then once that patient is loaded into the back of the transport vehicle, you have two people. Okay, You have a driver and a provider in the back. This is really important because a lot of places are at a stage where they're just trying to get them to the hospital. So they have a driver. And that is better than nothing. It is much better to have somebody not getting care in the back than left by the side of the road, because at least they're on the way to the hospital. But we don't want people to stop there, because you're missing essential time. If you have something that is life-threatening within minutes, and you're in the back of an ambulance by yourself, you are going to die. And we don't want that to happen. So it's really important to have a provider in the back. Then when the, um, there's some communication between the ambulance and the hospital to let them know that the, this person is coming, you have a handover, which is also really important. Because what happens in a lot of settings is somebody gets dropped off, and everybody goes, glad that's over, and takes off. Right? And so now there's no handover. So the provider has to start over, and you waste valuable time trying to catch up. Then you have a certain level of at the reception, so you need to be able to triage them, screen if needed. So, for example, the novel coronavirus, so COVID, screening that we're doing in triage now for COVID, same thing in the Ebola isolation units, um, and then registration. So some way of saying this person is here, this record is linked to this person, this individual, and not to another individual. Then you get to the back, uh, to the emergency unit, you have a provider, um, an allied health worker, you have assessment, resuscitation, intervention, and monitoring. So all of those essential things you're actually working on the patient to try to stabilize them in the emergency unit. And once they are stabilized, then you have what we call a disposition. And disposition just means where do they go? So they either go to the hospital ward, they go to the operating room, 
the intensive care unit or they go home. Um, and obviously if, um, those are for all the, for patients that, that survive, which hopefully that number will keep going up. So all of these things are what happens to get you from the world to definitive care, to care for your, for your um, illness or injury, right? So now that that's defined, now we have to say, okay, how can we support this? How do we make this easy for people to do and to implement in their settings? And where are the gaps? Is it that you have only one provider? You have some form of transport, which is great, but you aren't to the point where you have two provider, you have a provider in the back. Um, where are the gaps in the system? So once this was defined and once the countries all came to agreement on what the essential components were, then the team at WHO started getting information from the countries about, okay, what are the priorities then? So we have this system. What are the places where there are common gaps and what are the priorities for filling those gaps? So the first thing they did is develop this emergency care system assessment. And it's a way that the countries can look at their own systems. And this is not an outsider. This is not me as a researcher from UCSF coming in with a pencil saying, can you tell me what all your problems are? Because nobody wants to do that. This is people looking internally at their own system. It's between the government and WHO. And they get, they get um, um, stakeholders or people who are involved at all different levels. So it's not just the Minister of Health saying everything is wonderful. You get people who are actually working in the field who can say, well, actually, we have this problem here. Um, and they get in a room, and this is all discussed. So they figure out where their gaps are. And the way this assessment is written, there is no country in the world that is perfect on all of these levels. Um, and there's no country in the world that has none of all of these levels. There's Everybody is somewhere in between. Then they figure out where their gaps are, and then they prioritize them for themselves. So maybe one of their, one of their gaps is they don't have sufficient roads for a pre-hospital system. But to be able to fix that, they're going to have to get the Ministry of Interior to get together with the Ministry of Finance to figure out how to do the roads, and it becomes very complicated. So while that's a priority, that is not something they're going to be able to tackle right now. But one of the things they could tackle right now would be rolling out training on emergency care. So they set up what their priority is and where they want to go next. Then the WHO team figured out some of these areas as they were doing these assessments um, and also as they're getting in input from other countries on what are the priority action, what are the main things that pretty much or that the a majority of countries are saying they need. So these were some of the things that they said. They need policies to improve access to emergency care, so government policies, formal triage and other protocols, because a lot of times what triage is is the most seasoned nurse or sometimes the person who's lowest on the totem pole who's like, mm, I think you're doing okay, you should go here, and maybe you look pretty sick so you're going here. So what we're trying to do is have standardized protocols. So if you have a really good nurse who can do a really good triage and her, her um, gestalt, her overall impression of patients is, is really good, she can't be there 24 hours a day. So how do we set this up so that we can... We can unify and standardize the triage. Then training on emergency care. So as I told you guys, how do you organize the chaos? How do you approach these emergency conditions? 
standards for quality improvement in data. So we, we can't fix the problem if we don't know where it is. And while this is probably the least sexy component of all of uh, emergency care, I think it's really important. Um, and it's something that's often overlooked. Um, and then developing pre-hospital systems. We have to get patients to the facilities. If we don't do that, then we are missing a huge chunk of the population that can't have access. So once they got all of this information, then they developed all these tools. So there are quite a few tools, and I'm not going to go through them all, but we can talk about them in the questions if you guys have questions about them. But I'm just going to give you a quick overview of the ones that are up here. So the legislative toolkit is WHO guidance from their government liaisons over what kind of laws you need to have. So, for example, a Good Samaritan law. So Good Samaritan law is the law that says if you are delivering care, um, that a reasonable person of your training would deliver, you cannot be sued for that. So that is what, what allows me as an emergency medicine physician to stop on the side of the road and help somebody. Because if that weren't in place, I might not want to stop because I might be liable. If I can't provide, I definitely can't provide the same care I would be able to provide in the emergency department by the side of the road. But if I felt like I was going to be liable for that, that might prevent me from stopping. So that helps um, to improve emergency care systems. And then other things like oversight and regulation of, of um, different providers within the system, et cetera. For triage, we actually have, uh, the WHO has been working with um, the International Committee for the Red Cross and Doctors Without Borders to develop a triage tool. There's lots of different types of triage. Um, Different countries use different ones, different hospitals use different ones, um, but a lot of them are way too complicated for use when you have a bunch of people. So if you only have one patient that's coming in or you have a few patients an hour or you have a bunch of staff that can spend time going through these triage tools, that's great. Um, but for example, the triage tool that we use at San Francisco General where I work clinically, it's too long and involved. And it requires, we have computers so we can click through things, but if you're on a piece of paper and you have 50 people waiting, it takes too much time and it's too difficult to do. So they have actually come up with a, a much more simplified version of the triage form um, that's being finalized and, and has already been piloted in several different sites. Um, so that will help, and that will help people from having to develop their own triage. There's also these checklists. So remember I talked to you about the person who's been working for 12 hours and hasn't eaten or gone to the bathroom? So these checklists are how you can go through and make sure you're not missing something dangerous. Then we have, uh, and then we have something that's called designating a resuscitation area. So that may be, I have six beds, but this bed here is where the sick person goes. And if there's somebody in that bed, that person is sick. And all of the things that we need for sick people are around that person, whatever it is. And it may just be gauze and Tylenol that is what you have. But whatever that is, it is there by the sick people. So you don't have to be looking in a locked closet for gauze when somebody's bleeding out. It's there for you. Um, and even those thing, things like that have been shown to reduce mortality. So emergency care training, so there is the WHO International Committee for the Red Cross and International Federation for Emergency Medicine Basic Emergency Care Course. Try saying that five times fast. <laughs> we call it the BEC for short. So I was one of the four editors for this course, um, and it's released. It's open source. You can Google it now if you wanted to. You can download the course. It's meant for 
providers. So it's nurses, doctors, advanced practice providers, pre-hospital providers. Um, it's not meant for necessarily lay people um, because you have to have a certain level of medical, it assumes a certain level of medical knowledge. But the interventions are often you have two hands and a brain, okay? And then they have a few interventions. We have interventions that are a little more advanced than that. The idea for this is that this works from Singapore to Somalia. Across the world, when people come in for emergency care, when they come into San Francisco General, there is a certain level of care that everyone should be able to provide. And we provide that in San Francisco General. People can provide it in Singapore. We've provided it in Tanzania, in Uganda. Um, and it's that same level. Where you go from there depends on your training and the level of resources that you have. But the idea is that we're all speaking the same language. And this isn't just for emergency care providers. This is for people who are working in a clinic. Or um, if you're, for example, an OBGYN doctor and you're working in an OBGYN clinic and somebody comes in and has signs of an overwhelming infection or um, a long, like a femur fracture, so a leg fracture, and they make a wrong turn and they come to your clinic, what are the initial steps that you need to do and how do you communicate that when you hand that person over to somebody who can, can manage that. So if you're the OBGYN and you have somebody with a femur fracture and you're taking them to orthopedics, you can tell them in a succinct way what's going on with this patient using the same terminology. So it's intended to kind of universalize that and, again, give people a, a um, way to provide care um, that's structured and standardized. We also have clinical forms, so those are standardized charts so that you can collect data from them, but also it makes it easier for people to fill out the charts than if they're having to write just on a blank page. Um, and then there's tools for pre-hospital systems, so standards and protocols. What are some things that you should have in every ambulance? How do you oversee those ambulances? And then what are some clinical care, some quick clinical care protocols? So all of these things have been developed under the leadership of WHO, but by experts from around the world with input from countries from around the world to be applicable around the world so that other people are not having to do this every time. So the idea is we're um, trying to take the work off of the people who are trying to provide the emergency care. You don't need to figure out your own chart. There are lots of people that have done that and put it together, and there we have it for you. Um, now, some of these things can be modified as needed for the setting, but at least the bulk of the work is done. Um, and then countries, when they do their emergency care systems assessment, they can look at where their gaps are and what they want to fill. And if, they're, if they say, you know, what we need to fill is emergency care training, there's a course that's ready and it's free and you can implement it. There's also something called the Essential Resources for Emergency Care, and essentially this is a manual for emergency care. So if you are a country that doesn't have an emergency care system, this tells you what should be in it and what are the steps you should go through to do that. And some of the things you may have, some of the things you may not, but it again helps to standardize so that people have a sense of what they're aiming towards. It's something we, I think, in the U.S. take for granted because, you know, if you ask a five-year-old on the street, what do you do if somebody gets hurt? They know to call 911. Okay? But that doesn't exist in a lot of places. And people don't even, sometimes they don't recognize what the utility of having a single number is because they've, they've never had it before. So 
This helps to outline those things if it's not something that you're familiar with and what the rationale is behind it. And then governments, policymakers, healthcare workers, administrators, they can look at it and say, do we need this? Do we not need this? You know, here, do we have something that fills this role? But it gives them at least an outline of what those components are. So how does WHO do this? So WHO is kind of the convening body. And one of the, the strengths of WHO is that they have a good reputation and they work everywhere. But they also have very limited resources. I think I always thought the WHO was this magical place where there's all these people running around and um, taking care of the world's problems. And when you go there, you realize that there are some really incredible people, but it's like one person in a small office the size of my closet who's managing emergency care for the world or who's managing, um, you know, trauma care or post-crash care. So it's very, very under-staffed um, and under-resourced, um, and it's, in, it's incredible the work that they do. The entire operating budget for the WHO is less than UCSF's. So, and they do this work worldwide. And the way that they do it is by activating their partners because people respect the work that the WHO does. They have the potential for global impact. And so they work with their partners through this. So one of the partners that they've been working with for this implementation is the International Federation for Emergency Medicine. So the International Federation for Emergency Medicine is a professional society for emergency care throughout the world. But obviously those providers in that society have a vested interest in trying to improve emergency care in their country, whether that's emergency care providers that they're working with or not. So the idea is they're trying to help to support um, the work of the WHO to improve emergency care everywhere. There's also groups like the International Committee for the Red Cross. So the International Committee for the Red Cross is a, actually a Swiss organization that is a nonprofit but they work to try to improve care and um, more equitable care, I guess, for patients in war-torn areas. So it's not just healthcare; They also have legal representation. They have the, the spectrum, but they work primarily in areas of conflict. But they also, their medical sections handle emergencies more, sometimes more than um, in more rugged conditions than anywhere else. Um, I actually just taught a course for them. I was teaching a basic emergency care course for them two weeks ago. And I'm not used to being the person in the room with the most boring stories, but I, these guys, I couldn't hold a candle to them. We had like Syria, Afghanistan, somebody, you know, we're, um, uh, had, uh, DR Congo, like all of these places where people were working under incredible conditions and doing really amazing work um, with their teams. So they have also been working on some of these tools, like the triage tool, for example, um, to help in the areas they work in. There's also what we call regional professional societies, like the African Federation for Emergency Medicine. That's the group that I told you guys I've been working with for a while. Um, but they have been working with the WHO to help pilot some of these tools in their member states uh, in Africa. So for example, the basic emergency care course was piloted through the African Federation for Emergency Medicine in Tanzania, Uganda, and Zambia. And that was, AFEM helped to link in WHO with the people that could do this and help to coordinate it. And then we have groups like our uh, UCSF, we have a collaborating center, WHO Collaborating Center for Emergency and Trauma Care. Um, I'm the co-director for that uh, for that organization. 
to be a collaborating center, that's really the only way you can be in an official relationship with the WHO as an academic center. It takes two years of documented work with the WHO, and then it took us about 18 months to get approved because it had to go through the U.S. government, the Pan American Health Organization, the World Health Organization headquarters in Geneva, I think back to some more lawyers from the U.S. and PAHO, and then back to WHO, and actually ended up getting signed by a series of people all the way up to the director general for the WHO. Um, so under this uh, arrangement, we have basically agreed to do a certain set of tasks for the WHO. Um, and a lot of that is around it's supporting their work to help develop a lot of these tool these tools for the emergency care toolkit, and then a lot of work around um, promoting, advancing, and developing other adjuncts for the basic emergency care course. Um, but it's a way that WHO can outsource some of their work to us, and we can help to support um, the work of the WHO. Um, this has been one of my academic uh, area of expertise for a long time, uh, and being able to support it at the WHO level helps to get that information and that, that work disseminated globally. Um, so it's a way that we in San Francisco can help to support um, and advance health worldwide, as our logo states. <laughs> so one of the goals, though, is we have all these tools, but we want to make sure that people use them appropriately. And we want to make sure they're not overwhelmed by the tools. So one of the things that we do um, as a part of our collaborating center is we're working to try to work to help to figure out the best ways to implement these tools. So the basic emergency care course, for example, if I walk into somebody's office in, uh, let's say, Tanzania, and I drop it on their desk and say, it's a great course, you're welcome, probably not going to get disseminated, right? It's probably not going to be useful. So how do we talk to people about this? How do we figure out the best ways to make this applicable to them? How do we make, um, how do we engage people and, and tailor the, the training and the learning to what they're seeing and what they need in their setting? Um, because the environment, I think emergency care um, and the approach to the undifferentiated patient is universal everywhere. But there are nuances that are subtle and different in different places. In Southeast Asia, for example, snake bites are a huge problem. They're a huge cause of death and, and what we call morbidity or um, lifelong disability. But snake bites aren't really that big of a problem in Russia, for example. Um, but there are, other, there are other things. Frostbite might be a bigger problem in parts of Russia. Okay, so how do you tailor this to make it applicable to people and to help them in their day-to-day -day lives? And so that's a lot of what we're doing work around. There's something called implementation science, which is um, one of the things that we've been working on and trying to figure out what's the best way to help people be able to use this in a way that works for them. So um, that's a lot of the, the work that we've been doing. Um, and I will end there and we can take some questions. Thank you guys so much again for joining us, I, for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.